Podcast, a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. Hello, and welcome to the ACOFP Podcast, DO.FM. My name is Nicole Green, and I am a member of the ACOFP Public Relations Committee. Today, I will be interviewing Dr. Catherine Galuzzi. Dr. Galuzzi is board certified in geriatrics, palliative care, and pain management. She is chair of the Department of Geriatrics and Director of Comprehensive Care at Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. She is also the medical director of the residentialist group of home care providers in Philadelphia. She's a graduate of West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine and completed family practice residency at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey School of Osteopathic Medicine. She completed a faculty development fellowship at Temple University and a geriatric faculty preceptorship at the University of Pennsylvania. She also completed the program in palliative care education and practice program at Harvard Medical School. So to start with our first question, we'd like to start off with something seasonal. So what is your favorite winter activity? You know, I'm so glad you asked me that question. It's a beautiful sunny day here today. Um, and it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's beautiful and lovely today. Um, but I know that in a few weeks, it might not be quite so wonderful. And my favorite thing to do on a chilly winter day is to go outside, grab some wood, get some kindling, come in here, make a big roaring fire in the fireplace, turn on some music or else sit and play the piano or play the guitar, make my own music or curl up with a book, but the fire. And you know, when I lived in West Virginia, we had a saying, those of us who heated our homes with wood, um, you know, wood warms you twice. <laughs> So you go out, you get the wood, you get the work done, and then you bring it in and you start the fire. And it's just, that's my absolute favorite thing about winter. I don't think I could live anywhere without a fireplace. Yes, I love a good wood burning stove and makes, it makes a big difference. It makes the house smell good. Yeah. Crackling sound. It's just dynamic. Mm. It's everything. Yes, it's definitely a winter staple for me as well. And it does um, like have a nice little glass of wine with it or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I like to bake a little too. <laughs> yep, that's good too. <laughs> yep. Um, so moving on to family medicine, how did you choose family medicine as a specialty? You know, that's a long and convoluted story, I think. Um, my dad was an internist. He was um, a... a uh, public health service physician who served his entire career in the public health service. He was assistant surgeon general. He was principal investigator on the aspirin myocardial infarction study and the coronary drug project. He was my role model. Um, and I really never thought I would go into medicine, but I always, when I finally realized that that's what I, I was, you know, <laughs> I am, I, I always looked at him and thought, I want to be the kind of guy who comes home at the end of the day and is excited to open a journal and read. And I, I was fortunate to be able to do all of the rotating internships because I'm an you know, early 80s graduate of mm -hmm. the West Virginia School of Osteopathic. I, I graduated in the fifth class. So we rotated and we did everything. And I realized at some point, Nicole, I loved everything. You know, I liked 
solving problems. And as much as I have good hands and I, I think I would have been a good surgeon or technician, I'm really all about figuring things out. And family medicine never lets you down. It just never lets you down. Yeah, that is certainly something I love about family medicine. And I realized this also during my rotations was that every rotation was enjoyable to me. And it was it would be so hard for me to pick a single specialty to choose. Um, but you are, so you do have some board certifications within family medicine. What led you to choosing geriatrics, palliative care, and pain management? Okay, well, I guess we should build on this now. Um, I did family medicine for several years at UMDNJ, and and, um, I had a lot of wonderful encounters with olders. And if you actually interview geriatricians, they will all tell you that they had a close personal relationship with an older person from childhood on. And that was my grandmother, Conchetta, you know, just absolutely. But it was also in the interactions in family medicine that I really found um, camaraderie with the older, olders, more so than with the younger people. I found that the younger people, a lot of the time, were what I like to characterize as the worried well. You know, yeah. I actually got a call one night in the middle of the night from a woman who wanted me to come drive to her home and bring her some pain medication because, wait for it, she had cut her toenails too short. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Olders will never do that. They will yeah. never do that. They <laughs> may call you with the most critical situation you can imagine and wake you up out of bed with your eyes wide open, like jumping out of bed. What am I going to do? But they'll never hock you for stuff like that. And, and, I, and slowly but surely, you know, just like going into family medicine, because it encompassed you know, really the totality of, of medical care and, and the human body. The next step for me was, what do, what do we want for that? Well, we wanna age, we wanna, we wanna grow, we wanna stay here and be healthy. And what better way to learn how to do that myself than to watch my patients and to partner with them. And that's kind of the way I've run my career. And I've been so fortunate. I have had patients who've lived, I had a, just recently lost a 111 year old lady, Miss Lenora. Wow. I lost a Philadelphia icon, Miss Trudy Haynes, who was my longstanding patient. And she just died at the age of 95. I had also taken care of her mother. So I just have this rich network of olders that really sustain me, vital people, women, men as well, but a lot of women who just stay really active and just keep right on going and, and they propel me. And it just, it just inspires me all the time. I've That's never, ever second guessed that decision. That's amazing. So what what type of setting do you practice in? Are you in an outpatient clinic and just kind of incorporating geriatrics and palliative care it all together? Or how do you do that? So so it's an interesting situation if you talk to my team, because we're all doing little 
things, but we all do the same kind of thing. What we like to think of ourselves as providing the continuity of care. We do transitions of care. We take care of people in the home, literally their own homes. Of course, we see them in the office. We all have office hours weekly. Um, and of course we take care of patients in nursing home. We're on staff at five area nursing homes. I'm on staff at um, Lankanaw Hospital and also Roxborough Memorial Hospital. We do inpatient palliative medicine and sometimes geriatric consults, but most of the inpatient consults are palliative, palliative care, um, end of life decision-making, um, possible hospice referrals, sometimes just really ethical questions, family meetings. Um, so we, we do really run the gamut of care. And that's another great thing is you're not doing the same thing every day in the same place. You know, one or two days a week, I'm in the nursing home. I'm in the office for a full day a week. Go run over to the hospital and see some consults, you know, meet with the home care team to talk about the patients at home, meet with the hospice team to talk about the patients on hospice. So it's a very dynamic and, but connected, interconnected form of practice. And I, I really think it's the way of the future and geriatrics and palliative medicine have led the way for interdisciplinary um, teams. And, you know, now, interdisciplinary education is the big catchphrase. Well, but we've been doing it forever. And we know we need to educate everyone how we can all work together because we can't, we can't all do everything, but if we work together, we can really have a network of support. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually pretty interested in palliative care. Can you go on um, a little more to talk about what your role in the hospital is and what type of patients you work with there? Yeah, so um, we, we have done a number of things in palliative care. We have you know, palliative care patients at home who are being managed at home. We have palliative care patients in the nursing home. And, um, and we also have been involved in an inpatient palliative care unit where patients are actually like in a general inpatient, like almost in a hospital setting, but receiving palliative care services. What's the difference between palliative care and hospice? Well. Hospice is a medical benefit, Medicare benefit, right? And it accrues to someone who has a terminal diagnosis. You know, people say a six month prognosis. Well, who, who can do that? We, we ask ourselves what we call the surprise question. Would I be surprised if this patient wasn't here a year from now? And if the answer is no, I wouldn't be surprised. That, that, that patient is a palliative medicine patient. And that patient will at some point transition into needing, or I should say qualifying for hospice care. Why do you want that? Well, you want that. 90% of people say that they prefer to die at home. When you survey Americans and say, where would you like to die? They say they wanna die at home. Do you know what percentage of people actually manage that? How many? It's less than 40%. Oh, wow. Why? Yeah. It's because nobody's saying you're dying. It's okay. You can go home and die at home. We're going to make you comfortable. Right. Provide you with everything you need. You don't need to be 
in a hospital under hot lights and you know cold steel and blinking beeping machines mm-hmm. so that to me is my passion in in palliative medicine um both of my parents died at home um i fully intend to die at home my husband and i have that all planned out you know it's it's just it, it, it to me and I hope I don't in, insult anyone, but you know how we've sort of medicalized birth? Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many C-sections. Now, back in the day in West Virginia, we used to do home births. I attended multiple home births. It's not easy, but it works. The body manages. I'm not recommending that we do that, but we've really medicalized birth. And I feel like now we're medicalizing death in the same way. Mm -hmm. And I really think that, you know, the way we come into the world and the way we leave the world are not medical things, they're human things. So in any way that we can inform that process, assist that process, make it possible for people you know, because if somebody's in agonizing pain or they're having seizure activity or uncontrolled symptoms, yeah, no, they can't stay home. That's our job. Mm-hmm. Control the symptoms, make them comfortable, let them stay home. So in terms of your approach to primary care, how would you say that your background in palliative care has influenced it? Hmm. Well, you know, it's a conundrum because my primary care approach has always been one of preventive medicine. Like I've long been an advocate for the Mediterranean diet, vegetarianism. I was an early reader of Francis Moore Lappe's Diet for a Small Planet, which was a seminal work. Um, you know, so, you know, exercise, diet, lifestyle, um, mindfulness, um, preventive medicine, you know, appropriate routine checkups, uh, immunizations. <laughs> um, and so that's all preventive medicine. So it's almost like, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to avoid having to do palliative care, but even the best laid plans at some point, most of us do age into a point where we're facing the ends of our lives. So that kind of informs how I look at you. And it's not age related, you know, this has nothing to do with your chronological number, when, what year you were born. It really has to do with your comorbidities, your overall health status, and how you progress through your life. And I wanna be a partner with that, that's, that's it. So, um, back on to palliative care, how do you approach uh, end of life planning with patients and their families? Do, um, do you have like a specific system you go through or anything like that? Uh, if you ask my colleagues, you would, they would tell you that I am blunt and brutal. <laughs> it's, it's, um, I try to read the family. Um, something that I've, I have employed very, when I have the luxury of this is I will ask one of my colleagues to come in with me and we'll decide who's the good cop and who's the bad cop. (laughs) One of us who's really there to side with the family, support the family, the other one of us is like the voice of reason. And then we can kind of have that dialogue. Um, 
it really isn't easy. These conversations are the most difficult and fraught ones that you will ever have. And I'm the first person to say that I've seen stuff fly out of my mouth and I sit there and go, oh, I don't believe I just said that, you know? Um, and I'm not gonna give you my litany of things not to say, but I do have a list. Some other time I can give you my list of do not say this. Uh, one of the great things that's a, a resource for you, if you can access it, is the CAPC website, the Center for Advancing Palliative Care, CAPC. They actually have scripts, oh, CAPC.org. Wow. They actually have scripts, and they did a wonderful thing at the beginning of the pandemic, um, writing scripts for the interns and residents in the hospital who weren't able to let the family in to see the, the loved one who was dying or who were doing it through a Zoom meeting like this and really not knowing what to say, you could actually print little cards and have them in your pocket. So when the family says this, this might be good for you to say. Wow, that's interesting. Views are so meaningful, you know? Yeah. And, and um, do you have any other advice for like residents or interns that are struggling with giving um, bad news? Yeah, uh, my big advice is if you're not good at it, don't do it. <laughs> is there um, a way that you recommend like a way you can work on it? <laughs> yes, yes, in role play, in watching team meetings. There's a really funny uh, little New Yorker, you know, one of the little New Yorker comics strips, mm -hmm. cartoons that Diane Meyer, who is the immediate um, past, you know, past director of CAPSI uses. And it's a picture of a patient. He's sitting, the doctor's in his office. And he's got all the certificates behind him. And he's sitting in his desk and he looks very official. He has a stethoscope and the patient's sitting in front of him. And the doctor is saying to the patient, I have some very bad news to give you, but I'm not able to give it to you. So I'm going to send you to someone who will. <laughs> right? It was like, ah, that's such yeah. a bad doctor. And what, what Diane says is, no, that's not a bad doctor. That's a doctor who understands where their limitations are and, and wants this to be done well and wants it to be done right. So that's where palliative care comes in because we work on this. We work on this. We, we do it repeatedly. We've made lots of mistakes and hopefully learn from our mistakes. And that's why, you know, a palliative medicine consultation is, is even, even if there isn't something critical like starting, you know, starting the morphine drip or whatever, mm -hmm. um, you know, getting us involved to have those conversations can be very helpful and, and watch and learn. Um, I saw on your bio that you use or that you um, did some research in medical marijuana and its role in pain management. I'd be curious to hear more about that. Well, that's another long story. <laughs> I, I got involved with the Pennsylvania Legislative uh, uh, Drug Commission really because in, the, in 2010, um, as, as part of AAFP and CAFP and AOA and another consortium, AAMP, physician assistants, we, we got together to kind of think about what was happening with respect to the FDA 
REMS, Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategy Program that was imposed on opioid prescribing. So I've been involved with that for really since its inception. And because of that, I actually was asked to work on uh, the review committee for the original CDC guideline on, on safe opioid prescribing. And I've been doing a lot of opioid REMS education around the country. And again, asked to be on this legislative panel in Pennsylvania, which was headed by the then uh, uh, physician general in the state. And that was um, uh, Dr. Rachel Levine. Dr. Rachel Levine in 2016 spearheaded the legislation to push medical marijuana legislation through Pennsylvania and certified uh, 23 qualifying diagnoses, including opioid use disorder, uh, terminal illness, demyelinating conditions, neuropathic pain, uh, autism, PTSD, anxiety, there's a whole host of them. But what she did was she didn't just push this legislation through and say, okay, everybody has these conditions. You doctors can certify, you can't prescribe the marijuana. We're not prescribing it, we can't. It's a scheduled one substance like LSD or cocaine. Mm -hmm. But we can recommend that the patient is, has a certifying qualifying diagnosis and go to a dispensary and, and they can access the medication. So we're not providing medication. We're attesting to the medical necessity or medical qualification for it. And as part of that, Dr. Rachel Levine, who is now in the Biden administration at DHHS, and she is now Admiral Levine, <laughs> Admiral Levine said, what we have to do is research. We can't just say, go ahead, everybody, go get your, you know, your marijuana gummies or your troches or whatever they are and not find out what happens. So mm -hmm. she commissioned every medical school in the state of Pennsylvania to partner with a grower dispenser. And our partner at PCOM is Organic Remedies. And we have several ongoing observational studies. Why are they observational, Nicole? Because we can't prescribe. Ah, okay. So what we do, and it's difficult, it's very tricky type of research to do, but it's vital. One of the studies that I'm working with with the PsyD department is looking at the ability of patients who are act, able to access medical marijuana for opioid use disorder to reduce their reliance on Suboxone. Mm -hmm. That's one. Um, Dr. Fred Goldstein and I are working on doing a PK study to, uh, in, in um, patients who have, who are marijuana naive, just to see how different formulations move through the body pharmacokinetically. That's observational. Uh, he and I have also been doing for many years studies using memantine initially for neuropathic pain and now using Marinol for neuropathic pain. Marinol 
is THC. It's synthetic THC, but it's an FDA approved uh, anti-emetic, anti-wasting, it's for HIV, AIDS, et cetera. So we're doing research on that. And we've seen very significant improvement in neuropathic pain with, um, with um, you know, Marinol. So uh, yeah, this is ongoing. It's very exciting. I'm also doing a survey of all of the nursing homes in the state of Pennsylvania to determine um, administratively, whether they're going to allow their residents to use medical marijuana. For example, somebody in the community who's been approved for medical marijuana, who now gets moved into the nursing home after their fractured hip, and they want to get their medical marijuana, because the nursing home is getting dollars from Medicare, the nursing home is concerned about that Schedule mm -hmm. 1 FDA, you know, allocation, they may not be willing to supply the product. So there are ways around it. You can use surrogates. Uh, in fact, the Pennsylvania legislation allows you to name a surrogate who can go to the dispensary for you. Okay. So my survey is examining those attitudes and policy and procedure to see if it exists. And I think if nothing else, we're raising awareness that no, policy and procedure doesn't exist. This isn't easy, um, but we're gonna work together to make it better. That's awesome. That sounds like a lot of really cool research in medical yes, marijuana. It's a lot of fun. It's yeah. Okay. yeah. Are you working on any other research projects right now besides the medical marijuana? I actually am. <laughs> You're busy. Um, I, I, yeah, I have, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm having <laughs> Um, so I was able through a small grant from the McLean Foundation a couple of years ago to purchase a computer on wheels uh, with, a, with a big screen and a zoom lens and a derm lens and an otoscope and a thalamoscope and a digital stethoscope. It's a telemedicine monster machine. And so what I'm doing is I've divided I have a group of, uh, these are fourth year medical students who go over to MPAC, which is the nursing home very near our campus. And in the morning, I have two of them do chart review, see the patients, interact with the patients, write a note, come back, we debrief. They do 360 evals of each other. And then they do the Jefferson empathy scale and rate the, and rate the experience. Oh, cool. With okay. me there. Yeah. Then we do the same thing in the afternoon with me not there on the machine. Okay, okay. Okay, got it? Yep. And we're comparing outcomes. Oh, okay. Comparing learning outcomes, you know, uh, empathy outcomes, how I evaluate the students, how they evaluate me, I evaluate their progress notes. So I'm going, I'm doing a head-to-head -head comparison of what I call direct versus telemedicine supervision mm -hmm. of patient encounters in the nursing home. Sweet. That's really yeah. interesting too. That's about it. I think uh, if I get any more things on my plate, I'll get none of them done. So. Yeah, you're very busy. Yeah, well, but we, have, we have an N of over 100 now for the telemedicine. Whoa. Uh, so I'm, I'm getting ready to start crunching the statistics and writing it up. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. I think that's all we have for today. 
huge okay. thank you to Dr. Galuzzi for joining us on this month's episode of do.fm ACOFP podcast. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you'll join us for another episode next month of the DOFM podcast. The ACOFP student podcast is a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. To learn more about ACOFP, please visit www.acofp.org. Looking for more resources on OMT? Visit ACOFP's OM Teaching at www.acofpomteaching.com and ask your institution if they subscribe so you can have access to over 150 OMT videos and support materials.